out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we'd love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of David Barker from Glass Records, because I spoke to him very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, all that other groovy stuff. Anyway, Glass Records. Um, Yes, going from the early 80s until the early 90s or late 80s, but it has been resurrected very recently, and they'll be celebrating their 40th anniversary very soon. Anyway, famous for such people as the Jazz Butcher, also David J, Nikki Sudden, and um, Spaceman 3, and a lot more besides. Anyway, after a bit of casual chat with David, we got down to that exciting subject that was Glass Records, and also, um, yes, the importance of it in the indie world, and um, it coming back to life. And this, after that great comment, is David's uh, response. David, it's over to you. Basically resurrected it, yeah, five years ago, and a um, bit of a false start, and then two years ago kind of got it out on it, really. Yes. So, yeah. That's all good. Cause really, um, no, it's interesting because I think there was quite a lot of stuff we did in the 80s that I don't know, we got proper recognition for. In fact, sometimes the bands moved to another label, usually Creation or someone, and then they nick like... I did, you know, I did like actually three records with Spaceman Free. No one in the press give a monkeys, really. And then the one, then Fire, they'd move to Fire and they get a front cover. Yes. But, we... You know, but it was built, I think it was building, the, th- the three rec those records built it. It didn't come out of nowhere. But, um, yeah. But, you know, I never, I've never had a press agent or a press officer. It's like you do it yourself, you know, and um, I hate doing it. So that's probably part of the reason, really. I guess it's so. Perception, isn't it? You know, that's perceived. I guess so, but Pat. But Pat from yeah, but Pat from the Jazz Butcher kind of raved about the success that the band had with uh, Glass Records and the and well, we did, um, well, I'm really proud of the fact we went from a pub in Northampton in 1982 to um, to you know five week tour of America and Canada in 1986. Yes. Summer 86, you know, and uh, from nothing, really. And uh, the UK press were never particularly bothered by him either. It was luckily um, he picked up some good... We went to Europe a couple of times, picked up a good following in Germany, you know. Very loyal fans there. And there was interest uh, from America. That happened. Yeah. It obviously on a small level, but, you know, it was pretty good at the time anyway. Yeah. So what was your own background before the label? How did you become, you know, interested and curious? I mean, you'd been well, on in a record label. Um, you'd worked for a record label before, hadn't you? Yeah. Well, I actually... Well, of course, I was like music. I was mad for, for music from, like, 14 years old or something. But apart from all that, uh, I, actually went, I actually worked at an art studio, which is how I kind of learned the thing about doing the sleeves and stuff. And then I went to work for Polygram Distribution, which was local. I lived in Chadwell Heath, which is near Ilford. Or, well, near Romford than Ilford, but sort of in the middle. And um, got a job there, and it was, you know, it was distribution, but it was still involved in music. And um, kind of learned how that worked, I guess. And uh, 
then just, um, I was in a band. The, the real story of the label is we was in a band. We just called Glass. I guess we lasted about 18 months. It seemed like we rehearsed forever. Yeah. <laughs> and then played actually 16 shows, 16 gigs. And then uh, the main guy in the band, Kieran Hart, he got hold of an eight tra- uh, four track. He bought this four track recording gear, and he just wanted to do that. So the group fell apart, really. Yeah. And, uh, um, one of the early records. So the very first record was by Glass, a group, which was put out basically as um, just a souvenir for us, like you know, a memento, really. And um, did all right. I think they all they all sold, and then. The second record was a solo one of Kieran, of these recordings he'd been doing. And then, you know, I started getting tapes from bands and things, and it just sort of grew from that, you know? Yeah. And did you, and how long were you at Polydor for? Poly, it was Polygram. Oh, Polygram, yeah. It was the distribution. I was in the office part. I was in charge of the new releases and things. It's all uh, technical stuff. Yeah. You know, making sure the stock came in from the from the press implant on time for the release, this sort of thing. But I would guess that was from 79 to 83, 83 or 83. Right. So yeah, four years. Four yes. Years, really. And had you, during that sort of 70s period, had you sort of been obsessed with the sort of the whole, the glam, the prog, punk, you know, had that all been... Everything, really, from the... From, yeah, from, being, from seeing bands locally. First group I ever saw was Deep Purple, but, uh, you know, which, of course, I enjoyed at the time. And then, and then uh, loads of other bands, you know, they speak bands on locally. Bands used to play all over the place back then, you know. They didn't do, like, one London show. They did, like, six or seven clubs in London. Like, there was a circuit. Yes. Know? Like, nowadays, a band might do possibly one one or two, you know, they might do one night somewhere in East London and one in the West, but back then they kind of went all around London for about a week, you know, <laughs> so there was a gig in Romford and uh, Dagnum, Barking, all, this is just like East London, and then they would have gigs in South London and the West as well, so um, quite interesting, quite different really. Yeah, absolutely. Quite big bands, I mean, I remember, you know, Romford, there was this gig in Romford, the King's Inn, it was just a room out the back of a pub. Must have held a few people. I guess it was 300 or so. But groups like Deep Purple would play there and uh, Yes and these sort of groups that we thought were quite big. You know, they were in the music papers all the time, all that sort of thing. But um, but now it would just they would just do like one big show, wouldn't they? And that was it. Back then, actually. Yes. You, would, you know. But they did it even then, you know. I saw Deep Purple at the Royal Albert Hall, I think. Yeah, it did. I think then, in uh, yeah, I was going to say in the seventies, Deep Purple were huge, but then they, they did the odd sort of concert with the Philharmonic Orchestra, didn't they? As well, yeah, which was, yeah. that was actually, quite a trend. Yeah, the very first, actually, the very first concert I ever went to was that was that one, and uh, I was just all sort of impressed at the time. I was like fourteen or something, you know. I was more impressed with the group than with the orchestra. Well, I, I have to say, yes. but uh, when they did their solo bit, but. Um, but then, you know, after they were play- there was all kind of places around, not too far from me. It was a pub in the middle of Epping Forest, actually, the Wake Arms. You know, that was a regular gig. Difficult to get to unless you knew someone with a car, really. Or, um, 
you had to leave before the end to get the last tube, you know, things like this. Those were the old days. Yes. So had you started, were you doing the label in the early 80s at the same time as working for Polygram and just doing seven-inch singles? it it started, yeah, it overlapped. It overlapped. I did the first, um, let me see, first run come out 81. So, yeah, almost, well, 18 months or so at least, I think. Uh, Well over a year anyway. I put out half a dozen records. But it started to get a bit like, you know, people were ringing me up at work, but talking about, wanting to talk about, you know, the glass stuff, so I got a bit of a frown from the, from the manager there. Yes. You know, I don't, I don't know why, there was no skin off his nose, was it? I spent like two minutes on the phone. Anyway, that's the way they they are on it, aren't they, really? They don't like but, it, um, do they? No. Nah, that's understandable, I suppose. Yeah. But, you know, so gradually it just got to the point where I thought, well, you know, got to make, make... I want to do this. I don't want to work work here anymore. I really enjoyed working there for a while, but then everything changed. You know how sometimes the companies change. They bring in some other guy, and he has to he backs it all up. He changes it all around, not for the better, just because just because he's the new guy and he has to make his mark. You know. Yes. So they put me on, at one point. They put me on doing classical classical music. In charge of the classical department. Now, I, I, I like some classical music, but I have no real knowledge. Certainly not back then. <laughs> I didn't have really real knowledge of it or um, interest in it at that time. To be honest, it was just like you're doing the job. It didn't, they didn't seem to care. It, you know, I was really, really quite passionate about doing the other stuff, the new release stuff. You know, yeah. at the height of um, post-punk. Although no one called it that at the time, new wave and all this sort of stuff, you know. Well, absolutely, because I, yeah, because yeah, I sort of realised there was that period between, I suppose, punk, and then kind of, I suppose the thing that I really kind of hooked on, and I suppose I was at that age, was the indie world that was kind of eighty three, yeah. eighty two, eighty three, when you know you had the, you had you'd had orange juice. Was, um, you had these, yeah. That, I don't know if people even called them indie bands. Indi- you had the independent chart which I think was referred to as indie charts for short, so maybe that probably came from that. Mm. But you're right, Orange Juice weren't a punk band. No. But then, but I kind of think that 83, when the Smiths appeared, something yeah. really did alter and everyone was like, there was definitely... That's probably when it was... Uh, with, the 16 to 18 year old, I think, kind of went, right, this is our, you know, we don't, we don't really care about the punk and post-punk period. We've got yeah. our own person and it's, yeah. and it's from Manchester. Well, and... I think it got interesting, though, after the punk, and I think public image was really the kind of root of this, where it got experimental. You know, all the kind of things in a way that punk was against, you know, this sort of arty, <laughs> arty approach to rock, you know. It yes. It started happening, didn't it? And probably... It was public image, maybe, you know, the first, maybe the first of them, hard to say for sure, but certainly had a big influence. So, you, yeah, you've got all these kind of art punk, I suppose you could call it, or, um, you know, uh, weird, experimental kind of groups that, even groups like Throbbing Gristle and that, who had been around in some different form before that, suddenly they were part of that. You know, they were around for years under some other name. Genesis Peoria, you know. Yeah, definitely. And doing then, sort of like noise, really. Noise, you know. 
experimental noise and when you because yeah. you with your early years of, of the, the the label it was kind of seven inch singles and there were people yeah. um, like you said um in embrace and then the cravats who featured was it the shen yeah. shed for the very things yeah. and that and um I'm so, still in touch with it but well, I did embrace for that matter yeah. Oh, yeah and did you I mean, um, were a few years ago. And were they, <laughs> and were they people that got in touch with you and said, "Look, we, we, you know"? Or I think so. In some cases, well, what happened? I think it kind of stems from. Uh, I think when the first single came out, the glass single, I'd probably sent it to a couple of fanzines, and it got reviewed. And uh, one of the fanzines might have been run by Gary Knight, who later formed it, Embrace. But he certainly re- reviewed the next record because I got a tape from this guy Alex Novak in a band called Religious Overdose and they were the first outside if you like group that I did you know they were from Northampton so that hooks me into a scene that's going on in Northampton because there was uh, another band another couple of bands from there we did um, Oxford as well there was a band called English Subtitles I did from Oxford and I think that's how I think that connection is maybe how I I got to know Pat Fish, you know, right. because he was at Oxford at the time. And then, funnily enough, he actually lives in Northampton. He was from Northampton. So we all, like, linked up. But when I first met him, he was in a band called The Tonics, and they were formed at Oxford. It was just guys from Oxford all at the university, you know. So it all kind of, you know, it's quite natural, actually. I think some have probably approached me and then some I approached. I can't remember with the cravats what happened. Yes, but anyway. I don't recall meeting them. I must have contacted them somewhere, obviously. I don't recall seeing them. You know, sometimes you would see a band and go up and talk to them after and things like that. Yeah. Um, And, and And it must, I would have thought, was at very much at the start just a kind of a... A hobby band, or not yeah, a hobby, oh, a hobby as an a, as a label, because you wouldn't be able to. Oh, certainly up to the point where I left Polygram, it was yeah, it was just a bit of fun. And uh, in fact, with the first single, uh, I don't think really intended to make a label out. I mean, it was just this record was just for sort of posterity, just for us, really, you know. Yes. Absolutely, and, and then, but then I then I thought, well, this is cool. This is not too hard to do. And then I sort of did the next couple, and it just sort of built from there. And the first two or three I did just out of my own money, which because I was earning all right money, you know, at the time. But then there was this company. Uh, some guy approached. A couple of guys approached me. They run this company called IKF. And it was a distributor based out in Hampshire somewhere, but they had a London office. It was the guy who ran Illuminated Records. Do you remember that name? No. I've seen that name around. They did a couple of good things early 80s. Kind of forgotten, because I think the guy who ran it, Keith, like, did a runner somewhere, disappeared, no one's seen him for years. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they, they basically gave me what they would call a P&D, they pressing and distribution, you know. They paid for the pressings and distribute it, and then they paid us, you know, what was left over, blah, 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 I can't remember the rate. But I leave this to say, there was never any money forthcoming, but there was always enough to make another record. So I've got no regrets about that. I think without them, I couldn't have done it. Yeah. And I think with them, we maybe put out, we started doing then some 12-inch singles, you know, and uh, I think the first two albums went through them. 
three albums, maybe. Yes. Through them. And, uh, but like I say, there was never, never really saw any money come through, maybe a little bit here and there. But it, it didn't matter so much at that time. It was more just like, oh, I can make another record or I can keep going, you know? Yeah. But, I mean, eventually you have to realise you've got to pay the artists and you've got to, <laughs> you know basically take control of it yourself so was that quite a jump between you know like doing it as a sort of a, an enjoyable hobby and then thinking oh god i've got to sort more there's more to this yeah. than meets the eye because i know from talking well, to people, people from sarah records who started they suddenly had no idea they had to ask everybody have to ask somebody like every step of the way what's an invoice or what do we do now and yeah, it's like yeah. okay so i just wanted well, i think I'm, i knew a bit more than them then probably but I... <laughs> but yeah, you know, you just find out as you go along, and uh, it was loose, you know. I mean, a lot of the bands understood there weren't much money in it anyway. But I mean, uh, obviously, if there was, they would do some, you know. And it's like you had to do that, really. I mean, it's fundamental, isn't it? It's part of it. I mean, yeah. There's their trust, you know. You, if you haven't got their trust, you haven't got anything. So, you know, you have to get more business. Like, but I've got to tell you, I'm the worst businessman in the world. Absolutely terrible. Can't stand it. Can't stand dealing with any of that. <laughs> I never have, but you just have to sort of force it, you know. I leave it all to the last minute, all of that, you know. All to the last minute, no problem. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so when did I'd you... I'd rather be doing a bit of artwork or I'd rather be working with some, talking to someone about the next record and this sort of thing. Yes. So, you know. That's fair enough. So um... from that point, I guess I jumped, I moved to Pinnacle distribution and I was paying the pressings myself but you know the money was coming back it wasn't great it was all right and uh but the real change I tell you now sorry just jump in slightly 84 end of 84 there's a company called in the Midlands actually called Nine Mile from Lebanon Spa and they were part of the cartel you know what was called the cartel which was the rough trade and red run all these shops around the country that had their own little distribution setup and they wanted uh, to do the label and they were absolutely great and they did they did the precedent distribution like the other company had only this time there were money coming in you know this time it was cash coming back and uh, in fact they even advanced me some for here for projects things like that so that's that was the golden period i would say you know 84 to about 80 Seven. Yeah. Sort of then it changed. But we don't jump too we jump in too much if we get to that. But um yeah, you know, it was um it was good times, you know, and uh, I had a couple of bands that did quite well. And uh and the Jazz Butcher certainly started to actually sell some records, you know. Yes. And, uh started playing in Germany and France, uh Scandinavia, you know, getting, getting some live work. And uh which which was good, you know, it was good work, good good venues as well in some cases, did quite well, particularly in Germany. And, uh, you know, and then of course, you know, a few other bands come along. And were you all based in Northamptonshire at that stage? No, I've never been based there. Uh, I've always been in London. Right. Well, originally, well, well for the first two or three years, uh, while I still worked at Polygram, I was um, still living in Channel Eve. But then when I went, uh, when when went full time, we actually moved into moved up to London to Maida Vale for actually. So it was like a short hop to the West End and the music papers and 
this, that and the other. And Cherry Red music wasn't that far. They published stuff for me and things like that. So, um, or I had a publishing company through them, I should say. So, you know, things started to get, I hesitate to use the word professional, but <laughs> you know what I mean anyway. Yes. Uh, and did you feel because... Yeah, professionally, cause, more professionally set up anyway. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And did you feel, because the 80s, when it started, in, and as I said, kind of 83, there was a kind of a period where there was, you know, the music papers were really big at that stage, like the NME, and then oh, there was yeah. Melody Maker and Science and Record Mirror, and then John Peel with the, you know, became quite yeah. a thing with his, you know, the John Peel sessions, and, and, yeah. and uh, you know, the, I suppose what I'm saying is that there was a definite kind of period where indie pop was very kind of popular, and there was a kind of an audience, and there was oh, like... Yeah. Uh, you know, venues to go and see most of these bands, and there were people who would, you know, oh, turn yeah. up and see them. I mean, so, really, I, th- I think from from punk onwards, it seemed the music paper was just abandoned. The big those three anyway, sounds like they kind of abandoned abandoned mainstream acts, and uh, they didn't write about Pink Floyd or anyone anymore. They might have done a review of their album and probably slagged it off, yeah. you know. But it was all uh, it was all indie indie a go go. <laughs> all the way down the line, wasn't it? It was all those sort of, you know, that was what they wrote about. Well, absolutely. The still covered some metal bands, which uh, which kept their sales up. Um, you know, they covered ACDC, groups like that, and this. Do you remember the new wave of British heavy metal that came along around? That was just after punk. Yeah. Kind of, um, I was never into it much myself, but, but I guess it was younger guys playing kind of hard rock, but, but it was influenced with that kind of punk attitude or or playing faster, you know? Yes. Well, I know, I mean, I was always... a lot of speed, probably. Well, I know <laughs> Motorhead, which is kind of slang for speed. I yeah. mean, they they were definitely... But they did also, you know, I mean, Lemmy hung out with the sort of... Well, they all hung out with the well, punk crowd as well. They but... kind of were part of that, weren't it? Some, somehow they... Yeah, they were kind of acceptable, but Iron Maiden weren't or something, which is fair enough, because... Uh, I mean, they were better. Yes. But there you go, you know. But that was the sort of vibe that was happening. So that was like parallel, really. And, of course, some of those um, metal bands were on indie labels, so they were in the indie charts. So there was a real... And and reggae. So it was really, in a way, I I think it was good at that time because it it wasn't just a style, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It became a style. Oh, it's indie, and then you knew what it was going to sound like. A bit of jingly guitar, you know, you know, maybe a bit of harmony vocal if you if you're lucky, you know, maybe, and um, sort of sixties retro kind of thing or something. Uh, but that, but back then it was like there was a load of reggae stuff because that was all independently distributed. Um, in fact, the cartel distributed a lot of reggae anyway, and then um, I guess early hip hop even. Probably turned up in there, didn't it? Well, there was, yeah, there was that guy, um, Morgan Khan, with his labels, sort of, was yeah. it Street Sounds, oh, which, which was I very... I remember him, yeah. Um, I remember the label. Yeah, they'd bring out compilations. And reggae, there was, it, yeah. you know, at the in the 80s, there was a lot of Roots reggae, because you had kind of Aswad oh, and Misty totally. and Roots and Burning Spear and... Uh, oh, yeah. Oh. But a lot of stuff, because there was the Jetstar... Uh, they went bust only a few years back, actually. They were an independent distributor over in West London. Yeah, same with Greensleeves as well. 
Yeah, green sleeves. And Did they go under as well? I think they closed down, didn't they? I think they're still. I don't know. I got. I got. I think oh, I'm the sort of, label might. It might be active. I think the label, the name, is still somehow there. I don't know about Trojan and Fire and Blood, yeah. but anyway, there was a lot of there was a lot See, of reggae. Was, but for me personally, that was the exciting thing about punk because I've totally got into reggae at that time. Just probably just preceding it. I mean, uh, you know, like when Bob Marley came through with that live record which I think was, what, 75 or 6. So it was just almost at the same time. And then all these great reggae albums were coming out in 76 and 77. And um, unlike everyone else, because Johnny Rotten said he liked reggae, you know, we all followed suit, didn't we? But I, <laughs> but I did like it. I did like it. And still do, actually. I still dig a bit of Roots now and again. Well, Old yes. stuff. Well, I suppose Old I'm... stuff, not, not, not much new, but, you know. It's much. It was kind of much softer in the. Well, it was much more of a. The eighties reggae was quite nice, and then when it turned to ragga, and there was like oh, lots of. There was a lot of kind of conversations about guns and killing people and various things, yeah, and yeah. it was a bit harsh. Homophobic but, and sexist and everything else. Yeah, that, that was a bit uh, tricky actually. But the the Aswad years and Misty and Roots yeah. and Burning Spear and. I and, personally think it's when uh, it's when they started using drum machines in Jamaica because it saved them a fortune that's why they used them you know because they'd have to pay the drummer yes. you know so um, or any, any musicians it's all you know a lot of producers now just uh, or since then really just um, did it all on a computer or they hired a couple of guys to play the bass or something you know whatever but um, but then he started to get I don't know just something went wrong with it for me anyway but it's still the odd good record even with a drum machine on it, of course. Yes. Well, no, I, I digress, think... but anyway. Yes, well, that just, I mean... What but... I mean is that at that time it was wide open, you know, it seemed. Like it was really quite exciting in that respect that you could have, um, you know, I used to go up to Nine Mile Distribution, I say up in Lemon the Spa, and I raid, they let me raid the, the warehouse uh, sometimes, you know, and take a few records. And there would be all kinds of stuff from, you know... Like I say, from reggae and even, uh, you know, and, uh, I guess it was proto-ambient kind of instrumental sort of music, you know, crazy stuff. And then uh, bands like Flaming Groovies and the Soft Boys and this sort of stuff. You know, it was, it was uh, yeah, it was, it was, I think it was, like, yeah, it was wider. It was like broader range of music. Yeah. And it kind of later got got to be, I think. The 90s changed it all. Well, the major labels took over the 90s, didn't they? Yeah, but, but during the 80s, there had been a lot of kind of independent labels had started and um, and some were, oh, yeah. and some were doing well. Like, Sarah, you know, Sarah Records happened slightly more um, yeah. towards well, the late 80s. But you had things like Vindaloo Records and Kitchenware Records and 53rd and 3rd and Creation Records. So there was, a, there was a kind of a lot of excitement that had been started to build in the 80s. And obviously... Glass Records, you know, you had your, you you know, like the Jazz Butcher, Spaceman 3, and David J, who was in Bauhaus. Yeah. So you must have felt quite chuffed to have built a roster of people quite quickly. Well, I was, really, but, I mean, I think possibly, I've always thought this, but I just, it's just the way it is. Uh, my taste in music is broad, you know, so I think some of these other labels, I'm not knocking them, they, they kind of hit on a sound and kind of stuck with it. Sarah, best example of that. And because people who like that sound, then they'll buy everything on that label. Yes. Early creation was a bit like that. 4AD were definitely like that. 
plus the images on the sleeves, you know, and I respect all them labels. But it just seemed to me that I would do records that were a bit like, you know, they weren't similar. The artists were quite, diff- were quite different. But that's how I like music, you know. I don't listen to one thing. Yeah. You know? I mean, I, mean uh, I don't think it was deli- even necessarily deliberate by any of them labels. It's just the way their tastes ran at that time, you know. Yeah, I suppose. Some of the, a lot of this was localised too, which was great. You know, like, you mentioned 53rd and 3rd, which my good friend Stephen Bastel was the A&R guy of, really, up for since. And it, but it was pretty much, uh, I think, apart from they did a beat happening record or something, uh, was all Scottish, wasn't it? It was all Glasgow groups. Yeah, there were the shop well, assistants, weren't there? And, um, yeah, remember. shop assistants, Vaseline, who I've reissued some stuff with recently. Yeah. Um, Glasgow, um, BMX Bandits, first couple of records, Glasgow, yeah, they're Glasgow. So it was a local scene, and then you had labels, Kitchyware were from Newcastle, weren't they? They were definitely the northeast. I remember that northeast, was... Northeast, Sunderland, maybe? Yeah, like in that direction. And so. then you had like a Leeds or, or York, Red Rhino itself, the, which was a label as well as a, a distributor, you know... Um, in York, so there was a sort of whatever was happening around York or the immediate area, even as far across as Leeds, maybe they they covered, you know. Yeah, but when but during the that decade, which was um, obviously I'm kind of obsessed with. I mean, one thing that really changed the music scene a lot because obviously the 16 to 18 year old or 16 to 20 year old, you know. You know, there's a period, and then they're on the next level, and they're in the twenties. And the next group of people come along, and they want their own music scene. And then yeah, during of sort of eighty-seven, eighty-eight, you know, ecstasy came in, and suddenly people yeah. and the Smiths had broken up in eighty-seven. The indie yeah. world had really started to change, and most of those bands had done, you know, a few years, well, you know, quite a few years and a few albums not made much money and were giving it up. And then you had that next wave yeah. of people coming in who wanted to yeah, yeah. kind of rave a bit. So how did you cope as the decade wore on and you were coming up well, to the end of the, the 80s? Music did change. Well, the problem with that was really what happens around 87. Uh, I told you about these, the Nine Mile distribution thing. What happened, which really, uh, actually, uh, it was quite soul-destroying for me because these people are my friends as well. I used to go up there and socialise just at the weekends, you know, not even talk business. They merged with Rough Trade. So I went from being probably the top five priority label mm-hmm. to number 120, right? <laughs> you know, because I was nothing to Rough Trade. They had Rough Trade labelled, they had big, you know, 480, you name them. You know, they were doing all these big, big selling. They were doing stuff that had, was getting into the charts. Mm-hmm. Plus the Smith itself, so I didn't really get on with them at all, and uh, they weren't very forthcoming. They had no money to front it with, and um, so I moved actually to Red Rhino because Tony Kayu, the guy who ran Red Rhino, I'd known him and he was a good man, a good friend, was very very helpful. But unfortunately, a year and a half, later, a year later, they went bust. So you know, it was kind of a bit. Um, that was more like the business side of it. And musically, I did a few good things, I think, around then. Spaceman 3 and the Pastels were 86, 87. And uh, I had a band from Liverpool that I thought were great called The Walking Seeds. 
but no one else seemed to think they were great, but I did. And, uh, <laughs> and they were a heavier band because music started to get heavy again. You know, early 80s, you couldn't have a band that, a group like Nirvana couldn't have played in like 83. Oh, they're too heavy. Oh, they're heavy metal. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. This would have been the attitude. Oh, they're too noisy. You know, this was young Marble Giant's time, who I love, actually, so I'm <laughs> them. But, no, you know, it just changed. And I would say, I think Walking Sea's first record, I did, the first one I did was 88. Their previous one was 87. It was an album called Skullfuck. I mean, this is like proto-grunge, if ever you heard it. Uh-huh. You know, from Liverpool, not from Seattle. And uh, I mean, and I know for a fact a lot of these American bands heard that record. I'm saying they nicked it, but because Soundgarden and Nirvana were playing around that time anyway, they they came out, you know, their own thing was happening anyway. But uh, so yeah, it was kind of going that way, getting a bit heavier. The music was changing, and uh, the 80s was ending. That, what you think of as the sound of the 80s was turning into the 90s. And uh, and quite right. It shouldn't be. It should be different, shouldn't it? Yes, absolutely. Uh, it should be. It should. Uh, it might not. You might not like it as much. But uh, it's just the way it goes. Yeah. <laughs> it's like some people never go over the sixties music. Even people who are like half my age are mad at about sixties. Which is strange, isn't it? People are you know weren't even born till like you know thirty years later or something. Are mad about sixties music. So. Yeah, well, I did. I remember. Well, I remember just. I used to hang out with a slightly older group at times during the eighties, and these were kind of, I suppose, they weren't quite. They were probably old hippies, but they were definitely around in that early seventies, and they loved Neil Young, Bob Dylan, or and Van Morrison. And bizarrely, you know, they, you know, they were really obsessed with music during that kind of their their teen period and twenties, possibly. But they stuck with it. They didn't move to the next. Yeah. They didn't move to the next sound, and I found that yeah, really funny, strange. It? And and it's it was funny, like it? a, lot, a lot of people do that. I think. Yeah, and it's like, aren't you kind of curious what what this next band are like, even if you don't yeah. like it, just to give them a play? Because well, I remember. Yeah, so I, I always found that quite. I think weird. after a while, maybe it just gets a bit wearisome when you start hearing the new stuff that just sounds like the old stuff. Yeah. If you were. You know, maybe you know, maybe I'm a bit cynical, but it does seem to me that uh, not a lot has really happened in the last 20 years that's sonically that radically different from what you heard before. You know, from that, from say the 70s, 80s, or even 90s. Seems to me that maybe I'll miss something. Yeah. But you know, it's uh, the same sounds. It's just put them in a different order. Or maybe having something to do with the lyrics. I like lyrics. I like people who've got something to say with the words, you know, um, as well, which is, uh, becomes rarer, I think. Did you, Uh, and so what then kind of come, what happens then at the late 80s and early 90s when, you know, Glass Records, you decide to call it a day? Was there a a slow process of you thinking this isn't quite... I mean, for a while, well, one thing as well, which I've got to mention, is that uh, Robert Hampson, who later formed the group Loop, um, he worked with me. Uh, he came in to work with me as like assistant, you know, and, and I said, you know, it's lonely doing it on your own, to be honest, yes. all day long. So we worked together, you know, and he, he made a big contribution. Uh, we, the Pastels wouldn't have come to the label without him. And uh, 
couple other things that we nearly we nearly did a record with Popley itself, you know, but they decided to stay with the local label in Birmingham. Uh, it was in Birmingham, Solihull, because they're from up that way, which is all right. It would only have been a one-off single or something, but it would have been fun. Yeah, and um, a couple other bits like that maybe could have happened, but uh, but basically he formed Loop, and. Um, I mean, I could have done Loop, but I thought it might be seen as a conflict of interest, and it would have been. All the other bands get jealous enough as it is, to be honest with you. And if <laughs> and uh, look, if you look back at it now, Loop were quite successful, so they, that would have caused all kinds of problems. You know, they seem to be favouring them, even if it's just like a natural thing that they were more popular, you know. What can you do? Um, but anyway, <clears throat> so we got to the point, basically, where he was busier doing loop than he could than he could spend the time. So, you know, we sort of parted 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 um, like that really. He basically just went off to do the band. So I was just doing it on my own and uh and then when Red Rhino went bust, I don't know, I went back to Pinnacle because they were the only one left really. I could go to it was just a drag. To be honest, man it was just a drag, you know? Yeah. It was just worrying about this, that and the other. There wasn't that much coming in, you know, and uh, I just decided, well, I like working with the music, but I can't do all this other stuff. Why don't I just go and work with someone who takes care of that? You know, so I, I actually started a label through Fire called Paperhouse. Clive Solomon at Fire offered me the opportunity to do that. So um, it's kind of a continuation, really. I don't think it's much different. In fact, two of the records would have been on glass. Uh, the next Walking Seeds album, and a, and a guy called Fu Schoenfeld, and I'm with. He'd been on. Uh, he'd been on Mark Smith's label, called Cog Sinister. Oh yes. Before. He'd done what, an EP or something for that, and uh, he had a few connections there with um, Dick Cave and people. It was a good, you know, kind of singer-songwriter record, but a bit dark, you know. And then I found Teenage Fan Club. Which then, if you think about it, if I'd kept the label going maybe six more months, they would have been on it. Yes. And uh, things might have changed, you know? Well, absolutely. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't know. I don't know. But, you know, that was all great stuff and great fun at the time. And I didn't ever worry about stuff, you know? It builds up, you know? I'm not a natural worrier. But some things can get on top of you, you know? Even someone like me. Yes. You know? Well, running a bit... Well, when you've got the baton, when you're that person whose name is on all the legal documents and everything comes back exactly. to you, it's it's a bit different to the person who's just wanting to give you lots of suggestions and ideas, but they've got no responsibility. Plus, you feel you've let people down, you know. I feel, you know, I felt with the time when I let, let some of the bands down. And then, of course, you know, people move on, like, say, the Jazz Butcher, Pat moved on. We'd done five albums. Probably what, it was a good move for him. He moved to creation. Um, I'd done uh, two of the best records I think I ever did were by Nicky Sutton and Dave Cusworth, Jack, called The Jacobites. Yes. Um, those records were particularly popular at the time because they were a bit, you know, Stonesy, Faces, Retro, 70s. But... They've grown in stature over the years, it seems, you know, you saw those records. So, um, no, that was good, because Nicky went to creation as well. He split up with Dave anyway, so 
they actually both went to Croatia separately. <laughs> it wasn't the same. It wasn't as good. Yeah. You know, it was good, but it just like, it didn't have the spark. I didn't think so anyway. I don't think actually Croatia thought that either. But um, <laughs> and then, uh, well, for what I can, what Alan said a couple of times. Anyway, never mind that. But uh, you know, he thought he was getting a Jacobites record, and he got half one. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> it's um, you know, and then Spaceman Three moved on. You know, it was hard times. You know, I was skin simple as that. I couldn't pay the bills. So, you know, I just decided to... Now I would say I didn't close it, I arrested it. But I didn't, just basically didn't want to know about it. Yeah. I just wanted to shut the door and leave everything inside and move forward. I did, almost literally, do that, you know. With Fire Records. And did and yeah. how long did your period with Fire Records last? Well, it was there, 1990, I guess the summer was the first release or something. I guess it started about February or March. 1992, uh, summer 92, and then we, where I moved actually to Creation. I went to Creation for, again, for two years, 18 months, two years, just before Oasis came in. Yes. Well, in fact, they did come in. They came into my room, in fact, you know, just when they were, when Alan was talking about signing them. Um, and then I went back to Fire for about another, because uh, I went, I, it's interesting, I went back to fire because I was really happy there, but the second period, people, a couple of people had left and it had just changed, and I, was, um, I wasn't so happy. I don't know, that first period was terrific, that's all I can say, really. Mm. That first period, I think, was really great. But it was still good, you know, it was all right. Plus, you know, you're getting paid a wage and you don't have to worry about anything. <laughs> yeah. Did you... Um... I suppose it's a bit bit cliche when people say you know you should never go back sometimes to to a company once you've left. True. Yes. And Probably did you, and did your time in creation? Did you see the potential of Oasis at that time? Hard to say, really. I don't. To be honest, I don't think they, even the label did. Us. Not like the way you read about it. Oh, I saw them playing. Uh, they brought them down to play for for all the Americans, you know, for like Sony people from New York at the powerhouse in London. And yeah, I could see it. I remember saying to Alan, I think they're going to do it, man. I think they're going to be great. But, uh, he, he, you know, I don't know if he, I haven't read his book, but I'm sure he's all positive. But I distinctly recall him saying to me, I'm not sure about this group. He might be too, you know, they look like the baggy guys from Manchester. Am I, am I, is it two years too late? I said, well, no, because the music isn't baggy, is it? He's like, yeah, yeah, it's about the music, really, I suppose. Yeah. I remember that conversation, but I bet I need his book. But don't mean, don't say nothing. <laughs> God bless him, you know. God bless him, he did great with them, you know. They worked too hard, and uh, they got lucky, but luck's part of it. It's always part of it. Everyone, you know. Well, I guess it's luck and time. Yeah, it's the right place, the right time. Yeah, that's the luck part of it. Yes. But, but then it's how you do it. Then it's how you handle it from there. That's, that's the key to it, I think. But sure, other labels could have broken that band big, but it wouldn't have been the same way. No. It, it, was, it was kind of, it was it quite the marriage, wasn't it? It would have been it? as good. Yes. It would have been as good. It, it, it fit just right. Yes, absolutely. It fit just right, you know. That's the key to it, really. It's a good narrative. It's but, a good story. And then yeah, you ha- yeah. and then you had you know the great new labour period as well with t- Team Tony. So it's sort of is and and you know cool Britannia. <laughs> yeah. 
Cool Britannia. Well, so. all that, but I think that embarrassed a lot of them in retrospect. But um, but uh, well, it seemed exciting at the time, didn't it? It Just, seemed very exciting. It's a bit more exciting than it is now, put it that way. And people forget that now because you see, I see this stuff on Facebook now. All these people still can't get over the fact Jeremy Corbyn ain't the leader, you know, and uh, oh, Blair's a warmonger. But they forget what it was like that that night in 1997. I stayed up all night. You know, I just, it was such a, it was such a big thing, wasn't it? You know? Oh, God, I I re- I'm, David, David, Forget David. I bed about one o'clock. David, <laughs> I, I still yeah. reminisce about that night and that morning and that feeling for that next week yeah. where I suddenly thought, God, it's changed. There yeah. is a change. And it, it felt sort of amazing and things happened, yeah, no, you know, and there, were, and there was a lot of, you. you know, there was like, I know lots of things because I'm asthmatic. Okay, this is a bit boring, but I'm asthmatic. And then suddenly having banning sw- smoking in pubs and clubs and restaurants was like, yeah. oh my god, thank God, because I I just would would literally you know struggle to breathe. And yeah. you know, and I know no, that's not the biggest thing, but you know there was a lot of things that got altered that people would say. Yeah. Uh, probably wouldn't think it would be able to you know do something as simple as that. Well, actually, I was. I was a heavy smoker back then, so I didn't like that. You probably <laughs> hated that. You probably thought, bring back, bring back. To be honest, I don't really remember. Uh, I don't really remember. I think, to be honest, I probably packed it up. I think I probably kept smoking. I didn't go to pub with that so much anyway. It just, didn't, just naturally didn't sort of, you know. I got out of the business for a while, you know. I went and worked in a printer's work doing the computer design, art and graphic design, really, in printing. Yes. So, um... I suppose I still went in a few gigs, but yeah, I kind of like kept away from it, really. Yes. I went to the pub here and there. Can't remember. I actually can't remember uh, what it was like smoking in the pub. Because I, I haven't smoked for a long time anyway now, so... Yeah. So look, coming yeah. up to 2015, when you decided, was this kind of a period where you were thinking... Were you hitting retirement, by the way, at that stage and thinking, oh, actually, I know what I need to do when I retire? Resume- well, not really. I mean, I'm just hitting retirement age this year, actually, but uh, I suppose it's getting close. But, um, no, it's kind of... Well, there's this guy, this guy, uh, Gerald Palmer, who looks after all the Spaceman Free catalogue, uh, who's currently in dispute with him. But at the time, he wasn't. Uh, he did it for a long, long time. He'd done all the Sonic Boom solo stuff since like the 90s, right through the 90s to the to then, really, to 2015. Oh, like 25 years or so, you know. Yes. With, anyway, that's that's. I don't know all the story on that, so that's another issue. But he said he just phoned me up out of the blue one day and said he was I interested in. Um, at first, it was just. You know, finding stuff for him for reissues. You know, like old, old stuff. Yeah. You know, from all whatever period, no specific era. And um, I said, and then he'd pay me a fee or something, and then uh, something like that. It sounded like all right. So of course I made a huge list, and uh, <laughs> nothing happened. <laughs> Basically, nothing happened. Anyway, just a couple of times, he phoned again, and this, that, and the other. And uh, I think it was me who just got it in my head. Maybe what we could do... And I dragged my feet on it. I really didn't want to do it, actually. I sort of, like, said, well, maybe we could resurrect the glass label, do a few reissues of some of the catalogue stuff that I still have the rights to, and then maybe pick up a few 
you know, related. But the idea was to do it that it was related. Yeah. You know, like it was it was either bands, people I knew, or people that could have almost were on the label, or relate or connected somehow to people who were kind of vague, but you know, and it's kind of still a bit like that in a way. But um, anyway, so he said, "Yeah, great, let's do that." And I just thought, like, this is probably around like. 2011, 12, actually. And I prevaricated for two years, for sure. Uh, I just didn't know if I wanted to do it. You know, so uh, anyway, finally, it's all right, let's do it. And even then, it took them ages to get it together. You know, I thought we were just going to start and go, and it was like about eight months or something before they got the first thing. Anyway, cut a long story short, it started out one way and turned into something else. You know, oh, you can choose what you like. You, you're in charge, you know, of the, of the catalogue. Bing, bing, And then it's like I start suggesting things. Oh, we can't do that. Oh, no, I don't want to do that one. You know, so it just got to the point where I rang up Cargo Distribution and said, would you give me a P&D deal? Thinking that they'd say no. And they said, yeah. Uh, I wanted to do stuff on vinyl. You know, They didn't want to do it, you know, the other lot. Yeah. Didn't want to do it. They did a couple of things for a record store day. That's all they wanted to do, a record store day. Didn't want to do it. Uh, and I wanted to do vinyl more than anything else because that's what people were buying. It's obvious, you know, ask around. Just ask the distribution people. So, anyway, long story short, I was slagging anyone off because, you know, I, got, I wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't have come back to do it without him. So I'm grateful, you know. Yes. But I just decided... I had to be the one who decides what the records are going to be. And uh, if I'm wrong, I'm bloody wrong, but that's the way it goes. Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yes, because did you... Work... a couple of them, for example, you know, I, I wanted to, there's a couple I, I said I wanted to do, and he oh, don't do that. And I did them myself, and they did all right. Yes. And this so is all... Spa- and, and this is all Spaceman 3 stuff, did you... No, no, he, that's all separate. He just owns all that catalogue. They've got their own label, the Space Age or something, that does all that. But like I say, they're in dispute. They've got some legal... I don't know what it's all about. It goes back years, you know? Yes. It goes so back years. Because I always remember there was one particular album that came out. I don't know if you worked on this one at Fire, but that was the one they called Playing With Fire that seemed to... No, I didn't work on that one. Right. No, that was the first one they did after... Uh, they moved there. That was a be- that was like the year before I went to fire. I think that was eighty nine. Yes, you did. You did. Uh, I same... went to fire in the middle of ninety. So uh, I wasn't fire when they did the next album, Recurring, and I didn't have anything to do with it. And uh, that was done by someone else, Dave Bedford. I, I called Dave Bedford, and then they, that was about it, really, with them. And they split up anyway. Yes. You know, it's, so, so at the moment, because just to catch that, you you you're sort of running the label kind of on your own at the moment. Well, it's me and my wife, but yeah, it's called Glass Modern now. We just updated the name to make it separate from the old stuff. Yes. When I started, when we when we started with uh, this guy Gerard, I called it Glass Redux, you know, like the return of glass. And we thought, well, if we're going to go on a, a go go ahead and do it on our own, we'll just have to have another name. But it's all right. It's like a little family of labels. 
Yeah. I've got a download only one called Glass Miniature as well, which is just for the kind of. It's quite fun doing that because it's just like you can put out really weird stuff that no one, no one will buy <laughs> <laughs> because you've got no risk. But if you pressed up a five hundred records, you know you might get left with four hundred and fifty of them. Yes, <laughs> I know. That's but, the, that... you know it's interesting. It is but interesting. More, you know, more experimental, more. Um, I mean, I like all the stuff. I'm not just, I'm not put down for a laugh. You know, I mean it. But at the same time, you know, it's of a limited, it's limited audience, really. Absolutely. So we don't do that many on that, but every now and again, you know. Yeah. And did you, and um, I know it's a bit of a strange year, but have you got sort of much uh, planned for the next year? got a few ideas because, because it's the 40th anniversary, but still coming together. Got a couple of the old singles, a couple of the old um, compilation albums we're going to put up on Bandcamp for free, basically for free. And if any money, if anyone pays any money for it, we'll give the money to an animal sanctuary or something like that. Because some of these old compilation albums, I have no idea how to contact the artists on it. You know, absolutely no idea. So, um, you know, I wouldn't want to really do it. If I put it up and I'm making money off it, then someone will turn up, oh, where's my fucking money? So I'm just going to make it all like the money's going to charity, you know. Yes. Anyone objects, they can object. I'll just say, oh, they object to me going to charity and shame them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, well, I mean, I think it's fair, man. And they're, they're not going to set the world on fire anyway. It's just a fun thing to do, to be honest. Yeah. I've got a couple of couple of little projects, but I can't really say too much because I haven't got all the details. Right, we're going to finish it there because he does give me a few details and then said, please... Don't mention, edit it out, so I have. Well done, me. Anyway, look, that's uh, me in conversation with David Barker from Glass Records. A big thank you to David for giving me the time for that interview. Much appreciated. Um, this has been David Eastall, the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just to at C86 Show. And also, all these shows have been archived, and you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean. So there you go. Anyway, have a great week.